Today's episode of Our Close of Business is sponsored by Better Living Showcase. All the latest business news from WA, delivered daily. At Close of Business, News Briefing. Good afternoon and welcome to the At Close of Business podcast. This is Simone Grogan with your Friday afternoon headlines. South 32's Perth staff are set to relocate to 100 St George's Terrace by the end of 2025, with a plan to convert the entire third floor of that building from retail to office space believed to be in the pipeline. Staff were informed yesterday of the move, which would take the mining group's Perth footprint from at least four floors in 108 St George's Terrace to the entire third floor of the NX building. South 32 are currently the anchor tenant in 108 St George's Terrace, but their lease expires in 2025. Business News understands that a heads of agreement has been signed between 100 St George's Terrace owner ISPT and 108 St George's Terrace owners Realside and Lendlease for South 32 to occupy 5,000 square metres in NX. The mining group is expected to occupy the third level of the NX building, which currently houses a food court, JB Hi-Fi and Priceline, among other retailers. All of South 32's Perth staff will be affected by the move, which is expected to occur by late 2025. 108 St George's Terrace, developed by Perth businessman Alan Bond in the late 1980s, sold to Property Fund Realside and global real estate company Lendlease Group for $340 million in December last year. The building's former owner Brookfield spent $110 million in upgrading the building after it purchased the asset for $170 million in 2015. And in other news, more than 100 employees within Fortescue Metals Group are set to be laid off as the group looks to get boots on the ground at a planned mine in Gabon and shift focus to new projects in America. A Fortescue spokesperson confirmed the news this afternoon and said the action was part of the ebbs and flows of the business. Chairman Andrew Forrest told media and analysts during a results call in February that there would be no wanton job cuts to come, but the changes in headcount were a typical pattern at Fortescue. The comments came in response to speculation earlier this year that up to 1,000 jobs were under threat. Business News understands that figure is more likely to stay within the low hundreds. There were indications of potential cost-cutting exercises at Fortescue's annual general meeting in November when the group listed frugality alongside safety and family as company values. It comes as Fortescue looks to get a raft of new projects across the iron ore side and green energy side of the business up and running. Chief among those new projects is the Belinga Iron Ore project in the Republic of Gabon. Fortescue recently inked a mining agreement with the Republic of Gabon and is seeking to break first ground at the project by the second half of 2023. Belinga will be the company's first mine in Africa, joining competitor Rio Tinto in attempting to access the continent's untapped iron ore resource. Over at Fortescue Future Industries, new chief executive Mark Hutchinson has said the group is likely to make a final investment decision on five upcoming projects this year, with projects in North America, Australia and Norway on the list. And in other news, a spokesperson for the Perth Mint says it will work openly and transparently in response to an investigation launched by the London Bullion Metals Exchange over reported standard breaches. The state-owned investigation was brought into the spotlight earlier this week after a Four Corners report lifted the lid on a three-year doping programme that resulted in gold bars falling below required standards of one of the Mint's biggest clients, the Shanghai Gold Exchange. Perth Mint has since clarified that the breaches do not relate to the required 99.99% gold purity standard, but the contained silver in the remaining 0.01%. The group has also maintained that doping, or diluting gold bullion with silver, is an accepted process in the industry. Nonetheless, the fiasco has gained the attention of Independent Precious Metals Authority, the London Bullion Metals Exchange, which announced it had launched an incident review process into the allegations on Thursday.
The LBMA said Perth Mint was still on the good delivery list, which is a list of acceptable refiners of gold and silver maintained by the group to ensure precious metal products meet required standards for the London bullion market. A spokesperson for Perth Mint said the group welcomed the engagement with the exchange, of which it is a member, and said the authority was a long-term partner of the business. And that's all from me this afternoon. Coming up next on the podcast, senior journalist Matt McKenzie interviews Jordan Murray about new Liberal Party leader Libby Metham. Want to get more out of life? The Better Living Showcase has exactly what you're looking for. WA's leading health, wealth and happiness event, packed with live presentations, interactive performances, networking, investment, health and financial advice. You name it. It's all about helping you live your best life. March 18 and 19 at the Perth Convention and Exhibition Centre. Get your tickets now at betterlivingshowcase.com.au. Welcome back to Act Close of Business. I'm Matt McKenzie, joined today by Jordan Murray. How are you, Jordan? I'm good, thank you. Always enjoy when you're asking me the questions, Matt. Well, today I'm going to be asking you about Libby Metham because you've written about her in the latest edition of our magazine. Libby is the new leader for the WA Liberals. Where will it go from here? She challenged and took over the leadership from David Honey. What do you think is the significance of all of that? I think if you look at this at first blush, it would seem fairly insignificant. And part of that is because in 2021, under Zach Kirkup, the Liberal Party managed a pretty astonishingly bad result of a 21% primary vote. Now, obviously, there was a lot of factors at play there, but the end result of it is two Liberal MPs in the lower house. As the song goes, the only way is up now. Exactly right. So (laughs) the problem, I think, under David Honeywell, though, was that with some of the polling figures we were seeing, particularly those uh, published by uh, Seven West Media and the West Australian, seemed to indicate that there was room to move downwards, uh, and that would have spooked a party that already, as I said, finished in a pretty poor place two years ago. So Libby Meadams challenged for the leadership. As I understand it, she had the numbers well before she challenged on Australia Day weekend. But given there were some issues throughout the last year, notably the disastrous federal election, it wasn't quite as much of a landslide as a state level, but there were the loss of several federal MPs, including uh, Ben Morton in Tangney, uh, as well as the resignation of party president Wilson in November, there wasn't really clean air for such a challenge to be made. But Miss Meadam made it earlier this year, at the end of January, and on her way into the job after she was elected, she said at the press conference, with David Honey stood by her, in fact, that the reality was the team had not been as effective as it should have been, which were some very strong words. So I sought to sit down with Ms Meadam for this edition of Business News and find out a bit about her leadership and ask her why it is she wanted to be a leader and what it was that she thought the party hadn't been terribly effective at. One of the things you've asked about and talked about in the article very high up is the internal workings of the Liberal Party. And I want to ask you about that. But first, I'd just make uh, an observation. You've talked about some of the reasons why she might have delayed a challenge. And it is interesting to think that given the situation now, and we're going to explore what's happened with Nick Garan, um, it seems like perhaps David Honey would have been the person in the best position to actually get the plebiscite reform happening because uh, Libby has taken a different view with matters of Nick Garan, Jordan. Yes, well, the Nick Garan situation was fascinating to me because throughout the days leading up to her leadership bid, 
It seemed as if that wasn't an issue, and based on some conversations I've had, it seemed as if for some of the people who backed her in, that wasn't an issue either. Nevertheless, she attempted to remove Nick Grant as party secretary. That ultimately succeeded, but it took a few days to get through, and then she shifted him out of the party's shadow ministry, which I thought was very fascinating indeed. I asked her about that issue. I asked her why it was that she wanted to be leader. What were some of these issues that were driving her challenge for the leadership? And I must admit, she deliberates. She thinks about her words. She's careful. She doesn't want to say the wrong thing. When I asked her the question, first of all, why do you want to be leader? What were the issues that made you want to be the leader? She said that she felt the party needed a reset. They needed to put a line in the sand in relation to some of those internal issues of the party, being Nick Garan and the happenings of the so-called clan and that that was her focus and that was the focus of the team going forward was to put those issues behind them and to focus on the issues that were affecting everyday western australians so not a lot of insight there into what went on inside of the party but having said that she did talk a bit about the challenge heading into 2025 she talked a bit about her new team and i think there are a lot of interesting points that are going on there even if we're not any closer to understanding what happened in the days leading up to her leadership bid. You've said she talked a little bit about the challenge ahead in 2025. So what was her assessment of that? So there's been some pretty clear steps, I think, towards, let's just say, improving the hygiene of a good opposition. So one of the things that at least I've noted in the last few weeks is that press conferences are no longer done on the steps of Parliament. In fact, I've had to go on painstaking drives out to North Metropolitan electorates like Kingsley, Joondalup and Wanneroo, which are electorally important seats. Which is a long way for a man, by the way, who lives in the deep south, in the southern electorates. Indeed, in uh, Labor voting country, in fact. Well, everywhere's Labor voting country these days. (laughs) Um, But these are very smart places for a Liberal leader to be going. These are seats that, yeah, they might be on double-digit margins with the Labor Party, but not eight years ago they were held by the Liberal Party by a pretty comfortable margin when Colin Barnett was comfortably re-elected in 2013. So it makes sense to campaign in these areas and it also makes sense to campaign on issues like the cost of living and it's also helpful when you have business people with you and private sector figures with you so people like food bank boss Kate O'Hara and Accord West Chief Evan Nunn. These are people who can lend some pretty significant credence to their arguments. They're involved with the provision of services at an NFP level. They can speak to some of these issues that the Liberal Party is seeking to highlight, and particularly when they're seeking more money from the government. It makes sense to make friends with these people. It was also interesting to see some of the people that were elevated after her leadership challenge. So Jorn Sidmer and Steve Thomas were the two significant winners in my assessment. Uh, Jorn Sidmer has been given pretty wide-ranging duties as the Justice Minister, ostensibly because there's no one besides Nick Grant who had a law degree and could serve as the Attorney General. Uh, Equally, Steve Thomas, he's got energy, he's got treasury, he leads the opposition in the Legislative Council. These are all very high-profile gigs. Ms Menham herself, though, didn't shy away from the challenge. She made the point that this is the most popular Premier in the state or the country's history. He has enormous power in both chambers of Parliament and revenue that's propping up budget surpluses year after year. Mm. But The caveat to all of that was we have so many issues in WA nevertheless and I think that that speaks to some of the issues that she's seeking to highlight as leader of the Liberal Party heading into 2025. Yeah, you can't be Mr Lucky on Iron Ore prices for eternally, right? That is for sure. So that will be a question. Now, what are Libby Metham's priorities as leader and I guess theoretically if she were to lead the Liberal Party into a victory in 2025? 
as any good opposition leader, well, she's not the opposition leader, she's the leader of the Liberal Party, as any good opposing leader of a political party should be doing at the minute, she's focused on inflation, which ran at 8.3% in Perth in last year, which is the second highest rate of any capital city in Australia, and that was boosted largely by a 3.6% surge in the three months to December. Meanwhile, we've got a federal Labor government which is presiding over cash rate rises that are occurring at a faster rate than any time since the 1990s. And Matt, you yourself revealed some data around uh, WA households being behind on repayments. I believe it was by almost 50% higher than the national average. You only have to look at CoreLogic data as well to see that renters are struggling. The median rate increased here at the fastest rate in the country in December, which capped off an overall increase of 11.2% in 2022. So it's obviously very difficult if you want to rent or if you want to have a mortgage in this city. Now, Crime is another issue that she's looking at. She's particularly repeated this line that violent crime is out of control in WA. I'm not so sure about that. I've had a look at some of the data. It certainly trended upwards across the state in 2020 and 2021. Offences, though, were still relatively low last year, and WA police data tracks fewer offences this year, in 2022, I should say, than in the five years prior to the pandemic. So I think that's important to know. If you look at the state as a whole, violent offences are up, that is confined, though, mostly to an increase in the regions where we've obviously heard a lot of issues in Carnarvon and Laverton. In metropolitan Perth, where more than two-thirds of WA or Western Australians live, violent crime's actually gone down. Now, I brought up some of these figures with Miss Medham. She made the point that a lot of the data is distorted by a general decline in the rate of drug offences, which are lower now than at any time since 2014. Still, the point remains that a law and order platform might not be so compelling, particularly when you have a state government. They're running their own tough plank on youth crime, so I don't know if it's quite as compelling to highlight these issues when you have someone who's willing to meet you on those particular issues. Health policy was the last issue that Ms. Medham was interested in focusing on, and I think anyone who's familiar with her uh, public persona up to now knows that she likes to talk about ambulance ramping figures, which have been consistently poor for a very long time. This is something that a lot of opposition leaders have focused on in recent years. I know Peter Malinowskis ran a very tough line on this in South Australia leading up to last year's state election. And there is some nuance to consider with some of these figures. Case volumes are getting ever higher as well at the same time as ambulance ramping figures are climbing. However, recently released Productivity Commission research shows that St John WA managed the second best response times for any ambulance operator in Australia last financial year, which would seem to indicate that it's not the ambulance operator that's at fault, it's the health system that is at fault. Now, unsurprisingly, when I spoke to Ms. Menem about these issues, a lot of that early closed responses that she gave, they tended to melt away. She got a lot more confident when talking about these issues. She talked about the achievements of the Barnett government on health policy, particularly in introducing the four-hour rule, introducing more beds into public hospitals, and this really seemed to be where she wanted to focus her attention. And I must say that if this is where she can focus her attention in 2025, as opposed to on internal party matters, if repeated often enough, it could give what is effectively a moribund opposition at this point some pulse headed into an election that a lot of people still don't expect them to win. Yeah, I think a good point there. And it goes to show that in politics, really, setting the terms of the debate is so important. And if it can be about health, that could be a really 
advantageous thing for uh, Libby and the Liberals. Perhaps she could uh, do like a video or something and she could be standing on an ambulance with some health equipment or something, driving down the terrace talking about ambulance ramping. And then on crime, that's an old favourite. Crime and cost of living, an old favourite for Liberal opposition. Certainly there's been no better time in recent decades to be campaigning on cost of living. Crime, I guess it's less about the statistics perhaps and really about uh, the, the way that people feel when they lock their doors at night, Jordan, and who knows whether that reflects the statistics or reflects something else. Jordan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, man. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au. Today's episode of Our Close of Business is sponsored by Better Living Showcase.